0: Before I start the sermon this morning, I wanted to say a few things. Um, When Jimmy gave me the opportunity to preach creation, or you might say, all of Genesis 1 and some of Genesis 2, um, I had to make a lot of decisions. And I struggled mightily with those decisions this week, as I thought about the many, many things that I could certainly not speak about in 35 minutes. Um, So, um, what I'm going to do is a couple of things. Um, tonight at 6 o'clock at the church office, uh, I'm going to be there. And if anyone would like to come ask questions about things we don't talk about this morning or questions about things I do talk about um, or you know, other, other issues that you have uh, as you've looked at this passage of Scripture over time, I'm going to be there. I will not I assure you I cannot answer all your questions because uh, I haven't answered all of mine yet. Uh, but I'll be there to, uh, to field whatever questions I can. I also have um, a number of resources that I'd like to point you to. So if, if you would like to ask a question this week via email, uh, just send me a message. And rather than sending you a list of 100 books and 50 lectures I've listened to and all that, I'll send you some pointed resources. But I really do want to help you take this passage of Scripture seriously this morning. And um, the the simple fact is, the Christian does not believe in a closed system universe. We don't believe that it was self-creating. We don't believe that it only operates through the natural, um, some would call it natural processes or natural laws, we would call it the normal, the regular providence of God. But simply stated, we don't believe in a merely natural universe. And so as we come to uh, Genesis 1 this morning, um, I want you to hear it and take it seriously. And rather than try to make an argument for my view of how long the days might be or how old the earth might be, I'm just going to, as the Lord would allow me and enable me, I'm going to preach this text as I see it. Um, And then tonight at 6 o'clock or through email, if we want to have some dialogue, that would be great. Yes, does everybody know where El Matate is? That's my office. Jimmy's office is right next door. And that's where I'll be at one of those two places. You'll find me. I'll be at the church office. Uh, I may. Uh, we're not going to read the entire text of Genesis 1 this morning. We did that last week. Uh, I'm going to preach the entire text. So have your bulletin or your Bible uh, open to the passage. Uh, and for the sermon text, I will just read... Uh, through verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Father, thank you. These words come to us across time and they point us to before time. They point us to you and your creative act where you began to reveal yourself to us. We pray this morning that we would respond in wonder and worship. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I love great first lines. I have two... Most favorite first lines. Here's one of them In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I remember the first time I read those words, I don't remember what year it was, I was young. Immediately my mind filled with questions What is a hobbit? What kind of a creature lives in a hole in the ground? But one thing was clear, the Hobbit was going to be a major player in the story. My other favorite is this, and if I had to pick one or the other, it would be this one. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) And that's from Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Really just one question here, man, what did that kid do? Friends, what we have before us this morning is the opening line of the most important book ever written. If you don't take it seriously, nothing that follows is going to make sense. And I don't mean just the book of Genesis. I mean all of Holy Scripture. These words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They must be true. Or nothing That follows matters. You see, Lewis and Tolkien, they wrote great myth. They wrote great fiction. The Bible is no myth. And Genesis 1 is no fiction. And though the form of this chapter might be called high prose with its repetitive language, it's not poetry. Our text this morning is true. It is accurate. It is history. And just like Tolkien and Lewis, this opening line introduces us to the main character in Genesis 1 and in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God. I pray that as we work through this text this morning, the the Lord will grow us in two areas, wonder and worship. Now, Genesis 1 is first and foremost about God. We might put it this way, it's the beginning of God's self-revelation of Himself to His creatures. Both God's creative acts themselves and Moses' recording of these acts proclaim the glory and the majesty and the power and the creativity of God. Now, as we begin, we notice a couple of things about how God creates. First, God creates out of nothing. We call this ex nihilo creation. Out of nothing, God creates. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we have here is a figure of speech called a merism. Okay? It's important. Because there are merisms all over Scripture. And it's a figure of speech that uses two contrasting parts of a whole to represent the whole. Here's what I mean. For example, if I misplaced my keys and I call Sarah and say, have you seen my keys? She says, did you look in that little dish I bought that I put by the front door for you to put them in every time so that you never lose them? And I say, of course I looked there. I looked high and I looked low. I looked high and low for those keys and I never did find them. What am I saying there? I looked everywhere. I looked on top of the refrigerator. I looked under the sofa. I looked on the table. I looked everywhere. My mirrorism is saying that high and low, these opposite parts of our whole house represent the whole house. And and let's get one from Scripture. Here's one from Psalm 121. You may be familiar. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this day forth and forevermore. Going out and coming in. It doesn't mean God's not keeping watch over His people when they're on the sofa. It's always, from the going out to the coming in, all of our day, God is is watching over us. So when Moses writes, God created the heavens and the earth, he is making a comprehensive statement. God made everything out there and everything down here and everything in between. For this reason, we see that God creates out of nothing. There's nothing he didn't create. And if there's nothing he didn't create, he created that first thing out of nothing. I want you to think about a being who existed before the world, who created all things seen and unseen. That's that's what verse 1 is telling us. It's It's a power, it's a being that we can't comprehend. Now hold that thought, let's color it in a bit. God creates ex nihilo, but He also creates effortlessly, doesn't He? With absolute power and authority, look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We call this fiat creation. It just means, let it be done. When God creates by fiat, He just says, let this be, and it is. God declares, let there be light, there's light. It's effortless for him in his power. And his power to create means he gets exactly what he wants to create. You see, no matter how skillful we... There are a lot of talented people in this room. I know many of you and the skills and the talents that God has given you. But no matter how skillful we are, no matter how great a musician or craftsman or cook we might be, our power over our creations is limited, isn't it? Let me put it this way Behind you and me lies a long line of wrong notes and wobbly chairs and burnt souffles. Not God. He creates exactly what he wants, exactly the way he wants it. And one result of God's absolute power and authority over his creation is it's good. God says in Genesis 1 over and over that He saw His creation was good. Look at verse 4 just as an example. And God saw that the light was good. In other words, the light God created was exactly the light He intended to create, and it will be fit for every purpose that He has for it. Now, all of that is true. Okay, here's the turning point. I'm concerned for us at this moment. You know what I'm concerned about? That we are just learning the brute facts. If you read this, even if you believe it, and you just get the brute facts, you missed it. God creates out of nothing by speaking with ultimate power and authority, but our dull hearts can hear that and just receive the information without processing So I want you to do something for a few minutes. It's something I often ask us to do when we look at the Word. I want you to use your sanctified imagination. Okay? Freedom to be wrong for a few minutes. Because some of the things you're going to imagine probably aren't what happened. And some of the things I'm going to imagine for you may not be how it happened. But let's use our imaginations for a few minutes and let's see if we can get inside this. Let's get inside it to try to witness it. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void. When God created the earth, it was just a big mass of water with stuff underneath. And and it didn't have any discernible form, and there was nothing in it. It was void. Listen to this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. God is like a master craftsman standing over his workpiece. And he will soon from the earth, from what he's created already, bring it into form and beauty. That word hovering, it's also used as a bird brooding over its nest, caring for it. Listen, the Spirit of God in this moment was hovering over the face of the waters. Think about that. What is God about to do? By His Spirit. In verse 3 it says, Let there be light. Don't just read past that. Let's think about it a minute. Have you ever been to a fireworks show? You know what I'm talking about. Before it starts, people are mulling around, waiting for dusk. Some guy's just dialed up Sweet Home Alabama for the third time on his radio. The crisp smell of deep woods off fills the golf course. And just a millisecond before you hear the boom, the night sky fills with an expanding array of multicolored lights. It's a spectacular sight. You, You really can't describe it to someone until they've seen it, can you? When God spoke light into existence... Before that moment, there was no light in the physical world. And then, and I imagine a boom, light dispels the darkness across the great expanse of all that God has made. Did it explode in one spot and then emanate outward? Were there billions of explosions of light all across the cosmos? Was it white light or a complete array of the spectrum? Did it travel across time and space at what we now call the speed of light or has it now decelerated from the speed it originally traveled at? I don't know the answer to any of those questions. But it was spectacular. When God created light, it was spectacular. And it was exactly like He wanted it. And it was effortless. And verse 4 tells us that God separated the light and the darkness. He called the light day and He called the darkness night. Before He even starts to form the earth, God is bringing structure and order in the alternation of light and darkness. Now look at verse 6. Look at your text. Here God takes a formless mass of waters that are now covering the earth and He separates them so that a vast expanse stands between The water's on the earth and the water's in the heavens. We read this verse and we go, okay, not much to see here. (laughs) Not much to see. (laughs) There's now light shining on the earth and if we had been there to see it, the light would have revealed something like 300 million trillion gallons of water. Covering the earth. And as we gaze at the vastness of it, suddenly some enormous portion of this water would have began to move into the atmosphere. How? I don't know. Maybe a mass evaporation. Maybe as a giant waterfall, a thousand times the size of Niagara, but flowing upward. Somehow, God willed that some of this water would separate. And don't forget this water. We're going to see it again in Genesis 7, by the way. And then in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now I'm starting to recognize the earth, right? Modern scientific thought will tell you that the mountains were formed by the slow creep of tectonic plates across eons. That may be the evidence from the empirical science, and I'm not going to argue with it. But I think what we see here in reality is tectonic plates obeying the word and the will of their creator. One diving at rapid speed beneath another. You see, these verses seem to have an immediacy to them, don't they? God speaks, and it happens. Again, however it happened, the globe that was first covered in vast millions of trillions of gallons of water, some of the water is in the heavens now, and now elevations on the earth have been formed so that dry land can appear in the midst of all this water. Now look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. You may be thinking, he already did that. We already talked about day and night. Look down at verse 16. Verse 16. God made two great lights, the greater light or the sun to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Just throw that in there. And I think back in verse 5, God has willed the concepts of a pattern of day and night just like an architect makes plans for a house that has not yet been built. And now he's making it a reality He appoints the sun and the moon for their purposes. Now I want to ask a question here. Why night? Have you ever thought about that? Darkness causes a lot of problems. Your shins will tell you this. Why night? If everything God created up to this point was good, why night? Well, there are reasons, and I looked this up because I didn't know. There are biological reasons that we need, we need night. We got to have it. We got to have it to sustain life. But I think there's more to it. Friday night, as I began writing this sermon and making the many decisions that I had to make, I put a fire in the fire ring. I sat down with a headlamp in my notebook under the stars. And this is my conclusion. There is an aspect of the glory of God that cannot be seen during the day. Let me say it positively. The night sky proclaims the glory of God in a way that the daytime sky does not. In the right place on planet Earth, from the highest peaks, one can view a landscape of the globe... Fields and rivers, great forests, vast oceans, and it is glorious. And it does proclaim the glory of God. The night sky is altogether different. To sit in the relative darkness of night and gaze upward at the stars gives one an altogether fuller view of the immensity of God's creation and His power and authority. For God to speak is to will God spoke all of that into existence effortlessly. His word never returns to him void. And friends, when he made the stars, that word was beyond the strength and authority of human comprehension. Listen, I tried to get a straight answer about how many stars we think there might be in the cosmos. I couldn't get one. Because it's a lot of conjecture. But listen, listen, it's a lot. I mean, it's a whole lot. Now, the most conservative estimate I found was 200 billion trillion. 200 billion trillion stars. They get a tenth of a verse in Genesis 1. God's power and authority is beyond anything we can imagine. Well, at this point, the earth has reached the form that God intends for it. Waters are separated from waters. Dry ground has appeared. God has created the vegetation to hold the ground in place and to provide oxygen and sustenance. The heavenly lights have been uh, delegated to provide the light on earth in an alternating sequence of day and night. And now God fills the earth with life. Guys, this is where the action starts. A swarming, teeming, pulsating collection of living creatures for the glory of God. Starting in verse 20. I'm going to read a longer passage here. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. According to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things. The beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Again an effortless act of a powerful God. Again, God is ordering and separating these kinds and those kinds, these kinds in water, these kinds in air, these kinds on the ground. Each of these animals created according to their kinds. Now, listen, this is imagination time again, okay? I want you to think to National Geographic. I want you to think to Earth. I don't remember which one the BBC just came out with. No generation of human beings has ever seen as much of the creation as we have. Do you know that? Not until the 1940s had anyone even seen a partial picture of the earth from space. And it was the 1960s in some of our lifetimes when the first full view of the earth could be seen from space by human eyes. And now we have program after program after program showing us the creatures that live in the depths of the ocean Herds across the Serengeti. Pods of dolphins playing. Flocks of geese and flamingos and albatross. I don't have time to unpack this this morning, but let me say a quick word. It's teeming, it's swarming. It, 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 there's life everywhere. There's life everywhere. And then as far as we know, the rest of the cosmos and the 200 billion trillion stars, there's no life. As far as we know. And yet here on earth where God has taken special interest and care, life is everywhere. And then something unexpected happens in this text. The language of the text shifts. And the God who has been speaking to the creation now takes a moment and he speaks to himself. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now I don't have time again this morning to unpack this much, but in verse 26 we see God refer to Himself in the plural. There's a couple of reasons that that may be written this way. Uh, one is what we call the plural of majesty—that just God's majesty is it's multiplied, and so He should be referred to in the plural. Um, that's one possibility. I think it's the Trinity. We see God speaking. We see the Spirit hovering over the waters. And we know from the New Testament that not one thing that has been made was made without Jesus Christ. So I think right here in the inner council of the Trinity, God Himself decides to make man in His image with dominion and authority. You are not a worm. As one theologian said, we are not what we once were. We are not yet what we will one day be. The the, the creation of man is something different. Man is the only creature made in the very image of God. And God gives man dominion over the whole earth and all that's in it. And third, and this is my focus here, he only makes two. Have you ever thought about that? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, it's clear from chapter 1 But Moses in chapter 2, he zooms in even further to tell us about how God created man. There are no swarms of man at this point. The earth is not teeming with man. God makes one man and one woman, and He puts them in a garden. He blesses them, and He does give them the same command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But to man, he adds this, subdue it and have dominion over it. And having finished the work of creation and ultimate power and authority and creativity, God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation. Friends, our first response to this has got to be wonder. Wonder. This whole world is a wonder. And the God who made it is a greater wonder. Have you lost your sense of wonder at who God is? Has the pattern of Bachman home, work and school, weekend, Bachman corporate worship, home, work, school? Has something about what we're doing here lulled you to sleep at the wonder of who God is? Listen, if the pattern of your life has isolated you from the creation, if the walls of your office and a four-inch digital screen get the lion's share of of your attention, it's no wonder that you don't wonder at God. I want to prescribe something for you, and I'll tell you this is something that my friend Steve Marsh has taught me. you got to get out there. you got to get out there and see what God has done. You see, the theologians talk about God's two books, The book of Scripture and the book of nature. Now, I don't have time to (laughs) make sure I don't say this wrong this morning, but this book takes precedent over the other book. But God intends you to see His glory in the book of nature. You have got to get out there. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Listen to Psalm 8. Now, this is David, okay? Shepherd, probably a lot of time outside at night. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at Your heavens and the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars, the night sky. Which You have set in place. Look at the question David is about to ask. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. David has a conundrum here. He knows that God loves him and cares for him. And yet, in the, in the midst of this incredible creation, what is man? Well, it's a man that God, as it were, bent down and played in the dirt to make. Intimately, one at a time. When David gazes at the vast cosmos of the night sky, he is in utter wonder, the majesty and glory of God. And yet he realizes the intimate care and concern that God has for man. And he is in a state of wonder. You see, it doesn't stop with wonder. When we see the glory of God in creation, it must, it must become worship. Wonder becomes worship. Wonder at the creation and the Creator and His care for us must lead us to worship. And that's what we're doing here this morning. You see, there are so many who get so close and still miss God. There's one more first line I want you to hear. And it's the first line of Carl Sagan's TV series, The cosmos, I don't remember what year it came out, maybe 79 or 80. And as the camera pans, this is the very opening of this series, okay? As the camera pans onto a high cliff overlooking the ocean, Sagan begins with this opening line, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Let me say that again. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That's the closed system that I was saying earlier that we do not believe. But then Sagan continues listen to this. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice. faint sensation of a distant memory of falling from a great height, we know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. Now contrast that with Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, for Sagan and many like him, the wonder stops at the cosmos. For David, and hopefully for us, the wonder of the cosmos is only the pair of glasses we put on through which we see the glory and the wonder of God himself. Listen to these words from Paul in Romans 1. and I think this is going to tie this together. He continues, claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What do you think Paul's been reading? Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here it is worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, if your wonder does not transcend the creation and become the worship of the one true God, your wonder will become the worship of the creation itself. Listen to Sagan again. The cosmos <clears throat> is all that is or ever was, or ever will be. Friends, that is religious language. And so is this. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation of a distant memory, of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. That is religious language. Sagan, at least here, is worshiping the creature rather than the Have you drunk too deeply of the naturalism that pervades our world? The idea that the universe created itself changes itself and will one day swallow us up into oblivion when our time is spent. Have you bought into that? This morning, I want to encourage you, go outside and look up. Climb a mountain and gaze at all the other mountains and the valleys below. Study this creation. Marvel in its wonder and then read this book and listen to these and other sermons and rightly interpret what you see. And when you do, there will be a tingling in the spine. It will be the reality that the God of the Scripture is real and he cares for you. And there will be a a sensation of a distant memory. There will be a memory of the time when man walked in the presence of God in the garden. And oh, there was certainly a great fall from a great height. Sagan had that right. And in the coming weeks, Scripture is going to reveal to us just how deep and heinous the rebellion in Adam and Eve was against this God against this great creator. And as we read this book of scripture, we're going to see something that the book of nature cannot reveal to us. No matter how many degrees, no matter the intelligence, no matter the IQ, there is something that the book of nature cannot and will not reveal to you. It's revealed here in the scripture. And it's just this. It's the mystery. That this powerful creating God would so love us. He would come after us in our rebellion. And rescue us in Jesus Christ. This morning if you have been in rebellion against God. If you have failed to give him the glory he deserves as creator and redeemer. Jesus Christ right now ready stands to save you. He ready stands to save you. And make you his own. He will turn your idolatrous heart away from worshiping your health or your kids or your money or your comfort or the earth itself. He will turn your heart to him when you confess your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, that you may wonder at him and worship at him, creator and redeemer. Lord, no measure of imagination that you have given any man can comprehend what you have done effortlessly by your word. But God, we know from the testimony of Scripture, just because it was effortless doesn't mean it wasn't intentional and intimate and joyous and perfect. Father, from the moment you created them, see creatures that we've never laid eyes on have been glorifying you because they were created by you. Father, this morning and as we go into our week, don't let the naturalism that pervades our world lull us to sleep. You are wonderful and we worship you in Jesus Christ.